0: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss.
2: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 32, The Founding of Carthage. Previously on The Fan of History... Shamshi Adad V won the civil war in Assyria after paying dearly for Babylonian support. Dido lost the rule of Tyre to her brother Pygmalion and fled with her supporters into the Mediterranean Sea looking for a new home. Her followers consisted of disgruntled nobles, hijacked servants, and sacred beach prostitutes. Well, Dan... It's a heck of a way to start.
1: Yeah, and before I talk about anything else, I have to mention a general called Hannibal Barca. In 216 BC, he stood on the field of Cannae in one of the most famous battles of world history and totally beat a much bigger Roman army and became the boogeyman of the Romans. this episode is where it starts. This will be the founding of Carthage, the city that will become the enemy, the archenemy of the Romans. And I hope we get to cover that. Uh, Yeah. We're doing a (laughs) chronological narrative here. Okay. And uh, we tend to start our episodes in Assyria. And we'll do that today as well,
2: because we are in the year 820 BC now. You know, before we start, I have to say... Whenever I hear Carthage, I grew up in um, a small town of East Texas. And the only rock and roll radio station that was out there was KTUX. And here in the United States, when you make your station announcement, you have to do it in a certain order. And it broadcasts out of Carthage, Texas. So, you know, at every commercial break, it would go 99.1 KTUX, Carthage, Shreveport, Exposure city. So I will forever only be able to think of Carthage, Texas, even though we are not talking about Texas. Uh, When I hear Carthage
1: radio, I'm thinking, like, okay, the elephants are going over the Alps. (laughs) Here is a rock song for.
2: Yeah. It's Tuesday. Back to Assyria. Traffic of elephants is. Backed up on the hi-fi.
1: Beware <laughs> are all Gallic rebels in the mountains.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess let's... let's the weather get talking. forecast
1: is really bad for you, Hannibal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Good luck.
1: Okay, back to Assyria. the <laughs> V is then the king of the Neo-Syrian Empire. Mm-hmm. Assyria dominates the Near East. And the V is the fifth king of the Empire... He's trying to recover from the civil war, and the vassal states are unruly because they had these seven years when the empire was uh, fighting with itself. So now they have to be brought back in line. And in 819 BC, Shamshadab attacks. He moves immediately to secure the northern border <laughs> against Urartu. All He's raid right. to the north and the east. Also, the Manians that we mentioned last time gets a bit of punishment from the Assyrians. And he, the, the reason that he moves to the north immediately is that Urartu has spent these seven years well. They have spread out. It, as I said before, you can't go directly from Assyria to Urartu because mountains are too high. So you have to go around them. Uh, so there's a lot of area to like try to reduce the Urartian influence in. Right. And Shamshadad makes this uh, fantastic claim that it took a huge territory, but it's very unspecific. So there was probably no territory taken. (laughs) He also claims a huge tribute in horses. Uh, And that might have been, this might just have been a glorified horse raid.
2: (laughs) So he just went and stole a bunch of horses.
1: Yeah, the Manians uh, imported horses from the steppes. So the Manians were a good source for horses the Assyrians. In the same year, the Babylonian king, Marduk sakir shumi who uh, stepped in and sold the Assyrian civil war, he dies. Whoa, that was quick. It's a bit uncertain which year this happened, because Babylonian historical records will uh, be very poor for the upcoming years. But 819 is the best guess. Marduk-Sakishumi was put on the throne by Shalmaneser III. He was the only uh, foreign monarch called the brother by the Assyrians. He put Shamshadad on the throne in our last episode. He reigned from 855 to 819 BC, and that's that's very, very long for an ancient king. What but he seems that? to have done a crappy job. Years. Wow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he seems to have been around for too long because. Babylonia is now going into decline despite having their brightest moment just in the last episode. And he is then the father of Semiramis, the princess who is now the queen of Assyria who we will dedicate a whole episode to very soon right before we go to Sparta. All right. So now the throne goes to his son, Marduk Balasu Ipki.
2: I love these names. They are... they are fantastic.
1: Yes. (laughs) His name is attributed to the main god of Babylonia then, that's why he's Marduk. Mm -hmm. But then Palasu Itki is the rest of his unique identifier. He's probably (laughs) quite old at this time. We actually have a document that is 25 years before this time with his name on it because he's a witness to a legal document.
2: Oh wow. Okay.
1: And the nobles in Babylonia are getting more powerful. They are weakening the royal authority. And... uh, We move to 818 BC, when the Assyrian army under Mutaris Ashur attacks.
2: They attack?
1: (laughs) They do attack. But you're supposed to be surprised at the name.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Ashur.
1: Mutaris Ashur. Who the hell is this? We just yeah. talked about...
2: I've never heard of these people.
1: We just talked about everyone in the Civil War. And this guy was around in the Civil War, but we have no idea what he did. But he came out uh, quite well because he's the Rab Sake, the cup bearer of... Uh, uh, of the V. And he doesn't bear any cups. He's more like the Grand Vizier. He's like Jafar in Al- Aladdin. Uh,
2: okay, there it is. There's the reference.
1: Yes, and you
2: know, never trust the Grand Vizier. Yeah, if, if cartoons have taught me one thing.
1: <laughs> uh, and we, we don't know why he is in command of the army. And why he goes to the record, he's in the record as the commander of the army. So most Assyrian kings would just have put him in command and then put their own name on the record. Right. But we, we have no idea why this guy is here. Every year, the Assyrians name uh, an important noble as like the guy of the year in the Epinom Chronicle. And this guy has already been in the Epinom Chronicle. Now he is put in the records as the commander of an army, which is really weird. And the campaign is probably similar to the campaign of the last years. So they, they take a lot of horses, they go on north and east, and uh, they try to make it look like Shalmaneser III, like, sweeps through Urartu, when the Urarchanser is thrown into the mountains. <laughs> but those days are over, and they can't get into Urartu proper, because there are mighty fortresses there, guarding against the Assyrians.
2: Uh, Alright, sounds like we got some, some news from China?
1: Whoa! News from China! In 818 BC, there's a great meeting in China. Uh, in his ninth year, King Xu'an, Xuan called a meeting of all the lords of Zhou China. Okay. And they probably gave him uh, their approval. Because this was the guy that was trained by the Gong He regency to become a rightful king. Right. And to become a, a good king, a, a king of justice and purity. And I think this meeting was to check how he was doing. And they were—they loved it. And, uh, of course, they had problems with barbarian disturbances. Sure. And that was probably what they talked about at the meeting. So barbarians are threatening China, but they now have a king that everybody likes. So that's good. Do we have to talk about Egypt?
2: Uh, I'm afraid we have to at least touch on it. Regardless. Yeah, people get upset
1: when I don't talk about Egypt.
2: But, but man, just reading ahead, it's... Brace yourself, people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I am um, I would really like to skip Egypt until 725 BC, <laughs> but uh, I know you wouldn't like it. So, okay, here's Egypt. Pederbass I rules Thebes and the western oasis in the south. He's okay. the pharaoh of the 23rd dynasty the II rules some other parts of southern Egypt. And he is, he claims to be both of the 22nd and the 23rd dynasty. Sheshonk III rules the north, the delta. He's of the 22nd dynasty. They're all Libyans. And then we have this guy, Osorkon III. Right. I will talk more about later. And we we'll talked more about him before. Uh, there, o- there are also Libyan, <sighs> War chiefs in the delta that are starting to behave like kings because they feel that three pharaohs are not enough <laughs> So the Delta is becoming more and more Autonomous they are more and more ruling themselves and the closer you get to Libya the less influence the Pharaoh in Tanis has So so maybe you could call them the 23rd point fifth dynasty <laughs> or something
2: right um, Is there any I was just curious, all these people, it used to be, you know, we know Egypt and they worship the Pharaoh. That's the common conception of, of Egypt. Yeah, With, now they have a lot of Pharaoh to worship. Right. But are, do they still keep the same beliefs? Like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be changing. Something has to be changing for this to even, even take place.
1: It's an interesting question because the, they are all Libyans, they're not Egyptians, but they, as we see many times in history, the superior culture wins out. So I think they have become, they've been in Egypt for a long time now, Okay. for many generations. So I think they are very, very Egyptian in their manners, but they, they are still depicted as Libyans. So they are distinctly Libyan on all the inscriptions and the, the hieroglyphs and stuff. Uh, One other way you can tell which pharaohs is influential is Mm -hmm. uh, how they date things because they use the pharaohs to date their years and all the people in the north date uh, after Shoshank III in Tanis, So it appears that Shoshank III is the most important uh, pharaoh in Egypt at this point and he would have any foreign interactions if there were any. Because he's like at the beginning of the Nile, so if you want to talk to Egyptians, you
2: end up with Shosheng. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
1: okay, can we not speak about Egypt anymore this time?
2: Yeah, yeah, let's let's just move on. Good. Back to Assyria! Yeah, Assyria. Yeah, In 815
1: BC, Shamshadda V attacks again, so there were two years when he didn't do anything. And we learned that that's a really bad sign. I was about to say, I thought he had to regardless. So maybe he did something and it turned out horrible, so they were sort of like, oh no, nothing happened. (laughs) Because the Assyrians never talk about things that go bad. Right. But the only thing we know about the campaign in 815 is that it was to Nairi. And that's the old name of the lands. So it was probably just another horse raid to the north. And we have some records from uh, Urartu at this time. And they wow. d- don't even mention the Assyrians. <laughs> so, uh. And they actually conquered the city of Musasir, which is right between Assyria and Urartu. So it's right on the Assyrian border. And this city has had uh, an interesting relationship to Urartu. But now it is conquered and becomes part of Urartu. And this is done by Ishpuini of Urartu, who is the king. He also makes his son Menua, the co-regent. So Urartu now has two kings, father and son. And this will be repeated in Urartu uh, a few times. Um, So at some point in this decade, I I put this in 815, but it's not very clear. Uh, And this conquest might have been what Shamshadad tried to prevent, but this is the last uh, intervention of the Assyrians in the north because now Shamshadal will turn his attention south. Musasir is a religious site that is important to the Iraqians, and I'm quite surprised that it has not been under Iraqian control all the time. And we will see it slip out of Iraqian control again. But this is the main site of the god Kaldi, the Iraqian war god, the main god, and his wife Arubani. There is a stele from Ishpuini that tells us of this event. Um, it was actually one of, it is in the pass of Kelishin between Ruvandus and Lake Urmia, Lake Urmia. This is uh, mountainous territory and very hard to get to. This stele is called the Kelishin stele. It was found by Friedrich Eduard Schulz in 1827. And this is Kurdish territory in the 19th century. Uh And we lost this guy's notes because he was killed by Kurdish bandits. Oh, wow. But people knew about this discovery. So a new expedition went out to find the stele, And they were also killed by Kurdish bandits.
2: (laughs) That's terrible.
1: And it was not until 1951 that a guy called Cameron could get to the stale again because he discovered there was a certain time of year when the Kurdish bandits, who had been around for a hundred years, uh, they were gone because they had to tend to crops or something. Right. So he went up there, he found the stele and it was encased in ice because it was so cold. Uh, wow. So he couldn't bring it with him. But he gave detailed notes about how to find the Kalishin staley. And it was first in 1976 when an Italian party went in under heavy military protection from the Kurdish bandits who were still around 150 years later. And and they found this daily, finally. And it tells the story of the conquest of Musasir by Ishpouini and...
2: Planning for your next trip?
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: So now after this conquest of Musasir, Ishpuini reforms Urartu. He dedicates a new cult center at Musasir. And he, he moves the cult of Kaldi, their war god, to Tushpa which is much safer than uh, Musasir from Assyrian attack. Uh, And it changes uh, the religious center in Musasir to worship Ardini, uh, a minor god, instead. But at some point, he changes the name of the city to Ardini as well. But at some point, the name changes back. So next time we talk about Musasir, it's Musasir again. And now the Uratrian religion is really focused uh, around the war god, Kaldi, who I I think he looks a lot like a carbon copy of Asher, the Assyrian god. But he has this this random feature that Asher doesn't have. There is a house of weapons, and that's the temple of uh, Kaldi. You sort of have a house filled with weapons. Wow. Uh, (laughs) So the temple is just... Your, uh, store for your, all your weapons as well.
2: Hey, that's convenient.
1: So that must be quite a <laughs> warlike temple.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, the, uh, cathedral of war, so to speak.
1: And now the Urartians are really on a roll. So the father and son team here, Ishpuini and Minua, they build several more fortresses. That's what the Urartians do when they feel good about themselves. <laughs> they build even more fortresses to keep the Assyrians out. But they also conquered to the north. They conquer a place called Etuini. They build fortresses on the southwest coast of Lake Urmia, cutting off the Assyrians from the lake. And this, of course, increases their influence over the poor Manians who have their fledgling kingdom at Lake Urmia. Right. And the, the relationship between Urartu and the peoples of the north, there are the, the mountains there before you get to the steppes. And there seems to be an endless number of minor kingdoms in these mountains. I wonder how many people is in every kingdom. It's like fifty guys. <laughs> right. Because we get these reports from Rartu that they conquer a ton of kingdoms all the time.
2: Yeah, it's it's really just like a cattle camp. They come up <laughs> on like who With are you? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Who are you? Uh my name is Joe. We have conquered the Kingdom of Joe! That's probably exactly what happened.
1: What? <laughs> that is Northern Kingdoms are doing something important. They are controlling the Northern Mountains. Because the Northern Mountains are under threat. And the Russians don't understand this. They have no regard for the Northern Kingdoms. They consider them primitive and they just want they, they don't, don't respect their gods. They only respect the gods coming from. Uh, the Mesopotamian area. But on the steppes, the Chimerian horde is rampaging, and they are... This is a massive barbarian horse horde, and they are pressured by an even bigger barbarian horde called the Scythians to the east. And the Scythian pressure is forcing Chimerians to raid into the mountains. So the northern mini-kingdoms are buffer states, against the horse lords of the steppes. And Urartu is now destroying the power of the small kingdoms of the north. So the safeguard is slowly collapsing. And the northern situation is becoming unbalanced. And where can the Chimerians go to escape the Scythians? I don't know. <laughs> Only south. To say, Only you to got, the mountains.
2: If you got mountains to the north that you can't go through... <laughs> You, really you can't go direction. through the
1: mountains if you really want to. Especially oh. if they are not properly defended.
2: Oh, okay.
1: But this is a situation that's brewing on the steps and uh, time... Uh, it, it takes a long time for stuff to happen on the steps, so this will not come to fruition uh, anytime soon. But eventually there will be a major Siberian invasion.
2: Do they yell Krom?
1: They are not Conan! <laughs> oh. I yeah. have no idea why Conan was called a Cimerian. <laughs> Probably Howard didn't think that anybody knew about the Cimerians. So he just said, uh, "What do you say we I'm, I'm getting to this point uh, in the YouTube narrative. It's, uh, I'm about to do the 710s BC. Uh-huh. And in 712, we will have the major Cimerian invasion when they face off against the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are allied with King Midas himself. Really? The King Midas? Yes, the King Midas. Wow. And we'll we'll talk about that in a much later
2: episode okay. of the
1: podcast. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Tyre, Tyre is the small but very important Phoenician city, the dominating Phoenician trading city of the Libyan coast, now ruled by Pygmalion, who did evict his sister, or his sister fled his rule. There is a lot of trading happening from Tyre, and Tyre is getting powerful. Uh, The Assyrians are gone, and that's one of their big markets then, uh, because of the civil war. But now the Assyrians are slowly reasserting their influence. But trading is super good for Tyre, and Tyre is expanding into the Mediterranean. So now we have to look at what happened to his sister Dido and all the people who fled Pygmalion's rule. They traveled the Mediterranean and they have to find a place to settle down and this story is all clouded in legends. (laughs) One problem is that the archaeological record in Carthage doesn't begin until uh, about a hundred years later than this. But there is no event in Tyre that explains why it would happen a hundred years later. So I have settled for this time because Pygmalion is a historical person. Right. And we know he was there, so it fits so nicely into, into what we actually know about history. But the, the founding date of Carthage is very uncertain. Mm. But the site is amazing. It's a natural harbor. It's a perfect place to build an important ancient city. There is a Libyan tribe that controls the area. And uh, there is a hill called the Bursa, and yeah, there is a weird story about an oxide. This is all legend, but I feel okay. I have to tell it. Because the Phoenician refugees talk to the Libyan king. They are like, "Oh, we want to live here," and he's, "Ah, okay, you can have some territory, but you can only have the territory you can cover with one oxide." <laughs> uh, sh- And Daido goes like, okay. And then she tears the oxide in a very, so it becomes really, really long.
2: (laughs) So she makes like an oxide thread.
1: (laughs) Yes, she puts the oxide thread around the whole hill of Bursa. But the name Bursa means something like oxide in Greek. Okay. So that's probably the, the origin of this legend because uh, the name actually means something entirely different in Libyan and in Punician. So, and, okay, let's look at the sources here. We have Virgil's Aeneid. Mm-hmm. I talked about it before. It's a great work of the Roman poet Virgil, and he is telling the origin story of Carthage with Dido as an important person. Um, this was mainly an attempt to merge the two Roman foundation myths the legend of Aeneas and the legend of. Uh, Romulus and Remus, Mm -hmm. and he does a pretty good job of that. (laughs) But at this point in the Aeneid, the hero Aeneas is traveling from Troy, trying to find some place to live. He encounters the very early city of Carthage, ruled by Dido. They fall in love, and in all these ancient legends, Dido always ends up killing herself, because he... Aeneas has this divine mission to found the city, and this city is already founded and it's not uh, the city where the Romans should live, so he has to leave. And then she kills herself by jumping from a tower. But before she dies, she um, says that uh, one of my. There will be a Carthaginian later that will take my revenge. So, rise up from my bones, avenging spirit, thus uh, talking about Hannibal. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, of course, uh, all legendary. Rome will enter our narrative in 616 BC because we can't confirm anything almost in Rome before 616. Uh, But there is a new city founded at the site of Carthage. This is a Phoenician city, very much, of course. it retains some relationship to Tyre, so they pay tribute to Tyre, they trade with Tyre, and they become an important outpost for the Phoenicians. So maybe Dido stabilized her relationship with her brother, um, but there will come a time in the next century when the Phoenicians needs to leave Phoenicia. <laughs> and go somewhere else, and then Carthage will be perfectly located. It's far outside the Mesopotamian world, so the Assyrians can't get to Carthage. And there will be a massive influx of Phoenician refugees to Carthage, which will, which will make Carthage this superpower it will become later. So at some point in the next century, Carthage will be the, become the most important Phoenician city. But it's definitely it's not at this time it's just a small place with some refugees that try to repair the relationship to the mother city of Tyre
2: so wow. we, that's so a lot I'd, that <laughs> that's a lot that happens at the very beginning of Carthage
1: yes and then we have nothing until um, this refugee crisis but the Phoenicians, in the next century, they will flee from an Assyrian king more terrible than any other Assyrian king. Greater than any other Assyrian king. One man that his enemies will only refer to as
2: the Assyrian. Dun, dun, I want to talk dun, about dun. him now. <laughs> but he was be in
1: 745 BC, and he is awesome!
2: Wow. It, so that's, uh,
1: that's uh, the founding of Carthage. Now there is a small Amazing. city. On the north coast of Africa, that will become really important later.
2: That yeah, it'll also be the the place where Brennan gets to hear rock and roll.
1: Yes, <laughs> and all because of Dido.
2: <laughs> no, because of Dido. Thanks, Dido. All right. So yeah, you, you now you got me pumped about finding out more about the Assyrian. That'll That's be a great. Long time away. <laughs> <It> <laughs> is. Have to go through the whole
1: interval first.
2: dun, dun, dun. All right. Well, what's coming up on the next episode?
1: Well, it's time to go even more legendary. I try to avoid legendary material, but sometimes it can't be done. But now we'll talk about the queen of the universe, Semiramis, the most famous Assyrian in world history. If you look On the web itself, on the internet, you will find that this person is the most referenced Assyrian by far. She's Queen Shamarat, of uh, the the wife of the V, the Babylonian princess. But her legend is just crazy. She just explodes during the the years since her time. And there are so many crazy stories about her that if only 10% of the legends were true, She would have been the most powerful woman in all of history. And if all of it was true, she was probably she would probably be more influential than Jesus Christ. Wow. So next time we go far out and talk about Semiramis.
2: Semiramis. Also, the most popular
1: narrative episode on YouTube is the episode about
2: Semiramis. Well, look at that, folks. You can get you can jump ahead if you want to. (laughs) Don't do it. But no, wait for us to talk about it. We uh, will add some some flavor to this fantastical story. Yeah, if
1: you listen to it on YouTube, then you don't get Brennan.
2: You don't get me. That's right. Flavor commentary is what I do. All right, please do go to YouTube, though. Like and subscribe and share. All those likes and subscriptions, they really do help us out. Um, give us a review on iTunes. It would be great. Also, Facebook slash fan of history. Twitter is at the fan of history. If you want to visit us on the web, thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. I have to say something oh, about yes. the WordPress site.
1: Please. The, the best thing you can find on the WordPress site is you can find the scripts for Timeline of World History uh, on the WordPress site as. Uh, with it, it's all, it's the full script with everything, so you can read about world history from 200,000 BC and uh I think we are at 8,500 BC now, so Timeline is a show written by Shane Sowersby that I narrate on YouTube, but on the website he writes uh about the same thing, so if you want it in writing you can find it there, we don't do that for any other final history stuff, so it's our biggest writing
2: thing Okay. Also, if you enjoy our content, please visit patreon.com slash fan of history. Any little bit helps us out.
1: Yeah, please do. We need $30 from the Patreon. We have 10 at the time of this recording. So if you can find in your heart to contribute uh, 50 cents or a dollar, for every episode on patreon it would really help us out and if we hit 30 dollars, we will continue this narrative past 701 bc and go into the exciting 7th century bc which is a time when things happen i didn't realize when i started this that we have so much information from these early centers and it actually increases every century so much so the 10th century bc not that much information 9th century bc a lot more information It just increases and the 7th century is crazy there is so many things that happen and it's still before the 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 main greek time the ancient greece etc so you don't probably know much about it i really want to tell you the story of the 7th century bc so please help us out at patreon.com we would
2: very much appreciate it again like he said it helps us out and it also is just more encouragement from you to us.
1: You will get the fall of the Assyrian Empire in six twelve BC. The sack of Nineveh.
2: All it's the culmination of the story we're telling. <laughs> yes,
1: it's the epic finale and it's truly epic. So with um, the pharaoh riding in to save the Assyrians.
2: Done, <laughs> done, It's like a movie.
1: It's definitely like a movie. There should be many movies about the sack of Nineveh. Amazing. All right.
2: Well, on that note, I'm going to say thanks for listening. And for this week, I am Brennan. I'm Dan. And you have been listening to The Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Fan of History. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks,
0: and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.